my name is Eric Walker-Rawson and this is Discussing New Approaches, the thought leadership series where we delve into anything strategy, data, tech, AI and everything in between. So today we're doing a social science and ethics take on AI and data and I'm joined by Martin Lukak who is the founder and chief data scientist of AI startup Koyos. Um, did you want to give yourself a bit of an intro to Koyos and, and also your background before starting it up? I think that'd be really beneficial to everyone listening. Sure, sounds good. So yeah, I, I come from social science background. Uh, I initially studied political science and international relations in my undergrad. And very early, I became fascinated with statistics, um, mainly as a tool to provide some answers to scientific questions, right? And obviously, being a very nerdy kid that loved programming always, I was uh, overjoyed when I found out about this awesome thing called data science, right? Uh, so that, that's been great. And I wanted to learn more of it. Uh, but I realized that if I would take a full-time career, there'd be very little time for me left to actually study this in depth. So that's why I decided to go for a, for a PhD. I also wanted to learn more about how you, how you do research, which is not uh, taught in applied masters. So I did a PhD in computational social science. Um, I liked academia at the time very much. I spent one more year as a postdoc at the London School of Economics, uh, teaching their master's in data science and applied social uh, data science degree. Um, after that, I transitioned to private industry. I worked as a research data scientist at a company called Quantco, which provided a very good blend of learning and, and applied research and, and solving very hard problems. But uh, early last year, uh, I started a company called Koyos with my co-founder. Uh, where we do personality prediction from voice. So we developed a, a new set of algorithms which uh, allow us to predict someone's personality uh, from just a very short snippet of their voice recording. And we, we use this in recruiting and learning and development, sales and, the other, uh, and a lot of other sectors for personalization. So to improve uh, communication, collaboration, messaging, et cetera, et cetera. Amazing. So just for anyone who uh, is maybe unsure um, with these types of courses, how does a how does the PhD that you completed differ from maybe a more standard analytics um, data science PhD? Right. Um, mine was was again a blend of social science plus the technical. Uh, but that I would say at that time, especially was pretty unique when uh, this was 20, 2016 last year where data science and computational social science was relatively new. It wasn't so much in the mainstream. It was getting its, its foothold and becoming the, the new hot thing. But uh, at that time, that was very, very non-standard. I would say today the situation has drastically changed. Even on the, on the undergraduate level, you can see a lot of new courses popping up. At, at the LSE, for example, there is a, uh, this, this new set of courses in, in their in their undergrad they introduced it's it's politics and data science sociology and data science and i find it absolutely amazing because i would love to do one of those like if they were available back then i would totally do one of those because it's great that people get access to to these amazing tools very early in their careers and they they, they can apply them and do very very cool things within a year or two of their studies amazing so what, what inspired you to start Koyos? just out of interest Right. Uh, I think it blends perfectly what, you know, my, my social science aspect, which is dealing with, with people, modeling, modeling people, trying to understand how people behave and, and why uh, at a very deep level 
with with the technical aspect that is very challenging. So personality prediction has been a thing for for quite some time now. Uh, it's been done from social media data, from text. Uh, some people tried from from pictures and images, which I think people should not do. Um, from eye tracking movements and you know a lot of a lot of cool stuff. But then we when, then we discovered this very very small niche that has been omitted for such a long time. That is your voice. And when you, when you read the older philosophical articles thinking about personality, there is this, this book from the 60s. Uh, it's one of the first things that people say, you know, just listen to what and how the person speaks and you'll learn a lot about their personality. And I think this is, we were uniquely positioned to train a set of AI algorithms to do just that in a very nice and rigorous way. Amazing. So what makes voice data maybe a bit different from sort of image and video uh, by comparison? Right. Um, image and video are a little bit dangerous from the, the ethics point of view. We can, we can get into that a little bit later, probably. Voice is really fantastic because it offers two signals for you, right? I mean, video does as well, but there is this, this, this danger. Uh, voice gives you a signal in what people are saying, right? So you, you listen to to you know them they're speaking about something but they, you know also it's very important how they say that right i mean that's 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 what our moms used to tell us right i don't care what you said but i didn't like how you said it <laughs> and that's basically it right if you can combine these two signals you you get a much richer signal and hence better prediction from your ai algorithm about someone's personality definitely i mean i um when i used to so when I started my career, I used to work on the grad side and um, I, oddly enough, even though I'm working in very technical areas now, I actually started off in uh, more soft skills areas like sales and, and recruitment and getting grads into those types of careers. So often we would talk about how can you uh, come across over a phone interview or a video interview, which is very different to in person. And a little bit of theory behind that was always how you're coming across. It's not actually what you're saying in a bit of communication theory. It's it's more body language takes up the biggest element of, of how you come across. And then there's right. the second largest percentage is actually how you're saying what you're saying. And the smallest percentage is actually what you say. <laughs> so again, it's, it's something that I think I can definitely see how it, how it relates. But I suppose going into our first topic, um, so coming from a social science background um, that you've described now, so how has that influenced your approach to working with data and AI? Right. Um, I think in general, I'll speak a little bit more generally, but this applies very much to my experience. People from with, with social science background have a slightly different mental model of the world when when trying to model uh, something, right? Uh, people from, from technical backgrounds are more used to these well-behaved problems, sometimes even toy examples that you know you, you can model stuff fairly nicely. And it, it makes sense The the big caveat of working and trying to model and predict people behaviors that people sometimes make absolutely no sense. The, the social world is extremely messy, extremely adaptive, deeply irrational in, in, in many respects right uh, and and so multi-dimensional that i think social scientists tend to tend to recognize and and sort of internalize this uh, right off the bat due to their studies and and being exposed to it quite a lot during their studies i'm not saying that technical people or people with technical background don't do that of course they're, they're brilliant brilliant scientists with technical background working in in economics and sociology uh, mostly physicists, mathematicians. I've had a chance to meet some of them, and it, it, I've been amazed how, how 
well can they frame and understand a social scientific problem. I think it's very, very refreshing. Um, my, my favorite example here is when uh, there's, I, I don't remember which book this was, but there's been, it's, it's been like a flashback. Uh, and and you, should, you should think as you stand in a crowd of people and there's this politician coming on stage and this politician is, has an amazing rags to riches story, right? They've been homeless, they've been an artist in their youth very much failing their whole life they they were they went to war for a couple of years of their life they came back built an amazing political party for you know the try advertising or talking about poverty and inequality right and you're like yeah that's what an amazing example and you would applaud this person but then there is this tiny twist right i mean you would be applauding adolf hitler Right. And th this is the social world. Right. I mean, th there is this tiny piece of information. You know, if I presented just the first part, you know, you have one reaction to the story. If I if I switch this, you know, obviously we know <laughs> you don't want to do that. And there, there, there is this this huge cultural and historical uh, connotation around that, uh, that, you know, the social world tends to do. Right. Atoms don't have such a tendency to, to change their opinions and. And, and, and behavior with such a tiny flip of, of information that is related to culture and history. So yeah, I, I think that's amazing. But but one, one thing also, there is a flip side, right? I mean, there are a lot of people from, from social sciences who would love to go into tech and they would love to work in these amazing tech companies. But a lot of them also have to do their homework in terms of the tech skills and upskilling. So exactly as, as all the all the people from STEM background cannot just come and, and make a meaningful contribution to social scientific literature, we as social scientists also have the obligation to actually learn the lingua franca of the tech world, which is the mathematics, statistics, have a very good grasp of at least one programming language and some software engineering, because otherwise you would you'd be really stifled in what, what you can do and how you can contribute in this in, in this environment. No, I completely agree. It's, do, you, do you think that barrier um, to more social sciences, um, pe people with social science backgrounds coming through, do you think that barrier is you know, thin or do you think there's quite a lot of work? Do you think data, the data industry and tech industry and AI industry would benefit from more social sciences coming through? Oh, absolutely. And they would benefit big time. We'll talk about it more probably when we come to ethics. Uh, the barrier used to be much thicker, and but now... I'd argue with with having so many great resources out there that are online that are free in most most cases, um, and having even tools like GPT to give you feedback on on some of the things in almost instantaneously is just just amazing. It's it basically is just a matter of whether you are willing to invest, willing and able, obviously, if uh, if if you are from you know disadvantaged background and you know you you are barely making the ends meet. We need to recognize that, you know, it, it is not a given that someone can spend four or five hours a day learning something as technical and complicated as mathematics, statistics, and computer programming. Uh, but I think, you know, in, in, in the Western world, majority of, of the social scientists from a good university have the chance to penetrate tech relatively easily because all the resources are at their disposal. I suppose, do you think there is the, on, on the opposite side, is there a demand for social sciences in industry? I think so. I think so. I think there's been maybe 2016, 2015 last year when, when Meta was, or back then Facebook, was one of the first companies to actually recognize the value of computational social scientists. 
And I, I, I have quite a lot of acquaintances who, who went there and did some amazing work. And it's been so refreshing because they previously been in academia with relatively constrained budgets in terms of, of the funding. Um, and then suddenly they, they entered the company and they had full access to, you know, to all their databases. And suddenly the, the universe of research they could have produced from one day to another was absolutely infinite. So uh, I think the trend is only continuing. It's, it's obvious for, for bigger companies that are in the generative AI space right now, OpenAI, Anthropic, Perplexity, Cohere, they, they all recruit also social scientists to study the social impact they are, ma they are making, their models are making in societies, uh, economists trying to model what is happening in the society with the advent of this technology. Uh, but also in product roles, you know, it's, it's people using your product. So you being able to understand why they are doing this and not that, uh, why they are so irrational very often and why they are just not following the rules you know, is, is extremely useful for, for these companies. You have to, you have to find those, those, uh, positions. They are not advertised as like, you know, this is social science position. No, you, those are technical positions, but with you can you can have an edge if you have a background in social science social sciences and have the technical knowledge to to pass their their initial tests definitely and i'd say if anyone's listening um who's considering that uh, transition from social sciences into technical background obviously you can do courses and you can upskill in that way but also get a mentor um, get a technical mentor who can who can develop you in that way um i think that would be uh, Again, probably the most beneficial thing that you can do, um, sort of move, yeah. help get you into that industry. But I, I completely agree. I think it's you see the same thing in um, other technical areas, like, um, like NLP, for example, where you have um, linguists who um, can work on sort of LLMs and, and other types of models. And although they don't come from a technical background, sometimes they'll be a part of those technical uh, teams to be able to advise them on the linguistic capability of these LLMs, because there are things that right. the technical side just won't see. So I see it's there are other sciences being applied to uh, sort of technology. So before we do move on, I'd love to ask you, what do you think the, the future might hold for that collaboration of social sciences and technology? Where do you see it going? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> that that is a big question. I, I would maybe answer. I would hope it would get stronger. The the connection there. Um, we we need people looking into these technologies, especially due to the absolutely rapid pace of advancement of these technologies. And I I don't think there is enough people trying to research and understand the implications of what has happened in the last two years. I think this is. This is very similar to, to COVID, even though COVID was, you know, more, more pronounced with all the lockdowns. And we actually, okay, we understand that it was a big thing when we were locked up at home, but this been, this were more silent, uh, and LLMs will take over quite a lot, large chunks of the economy. At the same time, they will create immense value at the same time, they will, they'll pose huge threats when it comes to misinformation and, and our democracies, for example. So it is so multifaceted that I don't think there are enough people out there having appropriate budgets to, to research this. I think, I, I don't remember the exact number. Someone was comparing the budgets for social sciences researching the tools versus the tool development budget. And it was like 
two or three orders of magnitude lower, right? So, so it's, it's billions now with potentially trillions if some Altman succeeds yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, going into this. And, it, and it's, it's literally peanuts for, for the social scientists trying to understand what this means for us as a society. Yeah, and it, it almost sounds a little bit sinister, um, I think, but it's, it, it underpins the importance of, of understanding the dangers of these technologies as they, like you said, as they sort of exponentially increase. Um, I suppose this actually leads us on to our next question. Um, so how, and, and I suppose this is from your experience with Carlos as well, but how do you scale a data and AI product ethically? Right. Yeah, uh, I think... we. we... Let's split this into two pieces. Uh, let, let's let's talk about the scale first, uh, because I think that that has changed drastically in the last few years. And then we can talk about ethics. Uh, so I just I was discussing with with my co-founder and, and our 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 engineer developing this, and we were just completely stuck with how do you plan for development in such an environment like this one, when every single week there is something new. Uh, this week, OpenAI released a text-to-video feature, right? Uh, we are all waiting GPT-5, Gemini model just came out. Um, new Llama 3 is probably coming out pretty soon. It's just insane pace. And you just you can just make very wild assumptions about where the world will be. And we used to do this on, you know, where the world will be in a decade. Then a couple of years ago, we started doing that, where the world will be in a year. And now it's like what do we expect next month and you just go crazy you know because it might it may happen and it might change the whole industry very very dramatically so and i think this also comes with with very big changes in how venture capital is is allocated to these companies so a few years ago uh, i was just listening to, to an audiobook from the founder of ways um fall in love with a with a problem not with a solution and it was amazing because this been a decade ago or so when he was starting the company and he said we, we raised a couple of million pre-seed fund and I, I literally started laughing because that that's a complete no-brainer today unless you just come up with some llm model right um and the the allocation of funds now or historically used to be okay we, we like the founder or the founding team, and we like the idea. Here's some money, go try it. The risk is there, right? Now what, what, what venture capital uh, funds usually expect is that you already have some audience, you already developed a product. So pre-seed funds are not anymore to build a product to, you know, to, to create something and test it out. The VC funds are now to scale up, right? So, and, and the reason why this is, and I, this is a hypothesis of mine, right, is that because it became so much easier to develop tools that can bring value very easily. Like literally, we when, when we are trying to raise money at Koyos, we were grilled like crazy about accuracy, about defensibility, data ownership, accuracy uh, on for different subgroups, etc. It, it's been absolute ordeal. But you don't need any of that to start a business today, right? You can just stitch together a couple of tools as, as a solopreneur and then just put it out there and start producing value for people. And these people will likely pay you. I follow a couple of people on LinkedIn and Twitter or X um, and they are solopreneurs. They have six or seven businesses where they make tens of thousands of pounds every month, basically just stitching together things that provide value. And I think it's just to give you an example, a great example would be a recipe GPT, right? 
my problem, I have two kids, right? I come, I, I come home, they're hungry, and I need to cook them dinner. I look in the fridge and I have no clue what to make them, right? And this is literally GPT-4. You just tell it what you have in the fridge. It will give you the recipe. I'll pay money for this. If, if it, there was a nice interface, I could just click or take a picture, right? And that there is zero development that you have to pay for, right? And there is a great app, great value. You'd probably be able to scale it up. But there is also a flip side here. Um, many companies fell for this trap uh, last year or where, when the better model started coming out. And there's been this very big trend of talk to your data GPT, right? So you, you have some documents locally, you, you run some, of some kind of an LLM model, you do the embedding, then you ask a question, it fetches the, the relevant pieces, puts it into the context window of the, of the large language model and it answers something smart, presumably, right? And people started developing this. It's been such a huge boom. But if you look at what's happened this year, this whole market has been completely erased by OpenAI releasing the assistant feature. So you can do that right there. You have NVIDIA doing this locally on their chips in your, in your local PC, right? And there are some, some, some companies that do it on the whole internet. One is called Perplexity. They are, they are the biggest competitor right now with, with Google that allow you to search stuff on the internet using a similar uh, approach and technology. So, you know, you have, you have, again, these two worlds, one that has been immensely successful, almost zero development cost, can produce value. And the risk now becomes the defensibility of, of the tech that you have, right? It's not anymore the founding team, whether you find the you know, product market fit, is now whether you can defend this against the, 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 the big players in the market and, and keep providing value and build the defensibility later in your journey. Do you think that scale and the how quickly you have to keep up with this market, with these big players, with these solar ed entrepreneurs that you know are developing things very quickly and pushing them out? Do you think that increases the, I suppose, margin of error and the things you're creating because you have to move at such pace and such scale now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there are dangers connected to that. Um, and I think yeah, that, that's actually a great, great uh, gateway to to the ethics question, right? So we now have this environment that is moving so quickly and, and people try to provide tools out there and, and people might start consuming them, but you know, what does it mean to be ethical in such an environment? And I suppose the, the answer is it depends, right? So there are, there are a lot of principles of, of ethical or how you develop ethical AI, but it, they matter differently depending on the product you're develop, developing, right? So on the one hand, you have a little bit more general ones like fairness, for example, uh, respect for people, inclusion, diversity, right? I think we all agree this, this are some general principles. Um, but there are some that matter less for some applications. So for example, do I necessarily need my model to be explainable? It would be great, right? But uh, in, in many cases, I, I don't necessarily need that. I don't need the transparency um, or, or maybe such a high accuracy because depending on what you what you compare it to. So it is really complicated to, to say or to actually evaluate what ethical means in general when it comes to AI. And I think that that's one of the things that I wanted to mention where, where social scientists and philosophers can actually add value because you, you cannot have this one, one size fits all kind of solution for ethical AI. You, you have to actually dig deeper into how your product influences lives of people. What are the dangers? Um, what are the potential implications of you releasing this uh, this model into the wild? 
And I think that was that was some of the thinking behind the EU AI Act, where they identified this this high risk areas, for example, law enforcement, employment, welfare, uh, migration, justice, right? So these are all areas where you have to really think very deeply about what your product does to to the people. And one one example I used to I used to discuss with my students was so imagine you have a social welfare program. Right, and now you, you run an experiment and see, see that you know, amazing. That it, it seems to be beneficial in helping people, and in some aspect, it does not really matter. But then you you run the analysis a little bit more, and then you find that it actually helps some people substantially more than others. Right, and now we are redistributing something that costs money. It's a scarce resource, so we have some kind of an economic obligation to maximize the social utility of this program. Right, so then you start allocating this program to those people. Is that fair that you cut off the people that would not benefit as much, but it would have made a huge difference in their personal lives, right? So th there is this one problem. And now, now like flip it on its head. Now you imagine you found that you are actually you are actively hurting people with this. Do you have a moral obligation to withdraw that? Yeah, I mean it's 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 a completely different conclusion you're reaching, right? So uh, there you said. Yeah, you, you probably should not, right? Differentiate and there, yeah, you shouldn't. Like you should not hurt people, right? It's, it's a very different situation, right? So I think the ethics or the complexity that comes with thinking about ethics has to be really informed by the specific use case. Um, and, and that's why I, I really value some of the, the voices out there who, who really dig very deeply into understanding the implications of AI. So one of them is uh, Katie Crawford. Uh, she she wrote a book, uh, uh, Atlas of AI. Amazing work. She was looking into the power dynamics, how we obtain data, right? So majority of the AI applications today are built on data that has been crowdsourced with not very fair wages, exploiting the, the difference in, in wages between the third world and the, and the Western countries, right? It, it would have cost us much more to, to have these tools had we sourced the data from, from the Western world or had we paid them a fair wage. So uh, it's very complex. And unfortunately, I don't think anyone has all, all the answers. And it, it, this requires very deep research if you want to do it right. No, I completely agree. I think it's, again, relating to your, your point earlier, I suppose, if you know that hopefully more social scientists can enter this field and provide more research, because that's the only way that we can even approach things like regulation or putting in standard practices for ethical considerations. I mean, it's, I suppose it's the same argument as, you know, when you go and buy a, a top or a, a shoe, you know, where has that been made? You know, if you're buying it from a big brand, yeah. what are the ethical considerations there? And, and although I think data and, and AI suffers from it being um almost a sort of intangible element you know you can't see it it's not physical therefore you can't directly see the, the ethical implications that you might be able to in the example that i just gave but they are yeah. still there and they still need to be considered. yeah that, that's that's a great example yeah we have we have the 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 source country on our fruit in our our local stores right but we don't know where the data came from that we trained our algorithms on so perhaps a bit more um 
train of thought or, or trail of, of uh, information as to where that data comes from. So more accountability, I suppose, is <laughs> probably some yeah. form of answer. But I think that's really interesting. I'd love to hear um, the sort of audience's thoughts on that um, thought problem <laughs> that you that you raise. So I suppose when you're approaching Coos, how do you or how can organizations balancing something like leveraging people analytics for productivity and, and also respecting employee privacy or sort of potential bias that might come up from those? Right. Yeah, I think I think the, the word here, the, the very important one is respect for the for the end user. I think and you I think you can just solve a lot of these issues with just being transparent about what, what you're doing exactly with their data, what is going to happen. What does this mean for them? And also build in good user interface and user experience so that they can opt out, for example, in case they don't feel uh, like they want to be analyzed. Or if so, one thing that we were very cautious uh, of is some people might not want to publicize their voice through and, and send it to the model. So we, for example, have a have an option to run and through a questionnaire. So if you if you feel like you be disadvantaged by doing this or, or you have any other problem, you can do the questionnaire and there is no disadvantage for you whatsoever. The accuracy is, is exactly the same. You know, the, the, the whole experience of the product stay the same. So I think I think it's it's these small things that companies can do, bearing in mind that the, the, the most important thing is to respect the, the user of your platforms. Um, the, the question about balance between leveraging sort of some kind of a people analytics and, and, and respecting their privacy, I think we can look back into the history in, in end of the 19th century where there's been this huge boom of Taylorism and a scientific management where people figured out if we, if we start measuring people and their productivity in, in some ways, we can indeed bring some productivity gains to the table. Um, but with new technology and, and new possibility to measure people better and more accurately and faster, some companies have, have brought this to an absolute extreme. For example, in some warehouses, they were timing people's toilet visits, right? And then they, they, they would fire them if they took too many, right? Um, they, some of the companies have trained algorithms to select or recruit people based on their existing workforce. There's been obviously tech company doing that. So it's been mostly white men with computer science degrees. So those were all the ones in their data set, those successful cases, and everyone else was a zero. So everyone who doesn't didn't go through the, the process was, was a zero. So they built a perfect classifier for white males, right? <laughs> you, you, can, you cannot blame the model. The model is doing exactly what you asked it to do. It optimized on this difference, right? It doesn't mean that in the end, if you use this model, you would get any benefit. You would actually hurt your company by, by using this. So I think it's been taken to an extreme. And now I think companies becoming more aware of this. Uh, a lot of this has been, has been uh, talked about in, in the book by Kathy O'Neill, Weapons of Maths Destruction. Um, which is an amazing book. I love and it. I think now being, <laughs> it's very good. Uh, many companies now start realize that they have to they have to put barriers and maybe some safeguards in their products, right? So very very, very small example. OpenAI is trying to do a lot of red teaming or all the 
all the big companies do a lot of red teaming on their model. So you cannot ask it how to build a bomb, for example. It was like, mm, I'm not telling you. It, it knows, it just won't tell you, <laughs> right? So it's these minor tweaks which are important. And one thing, uh, in, in specifically for Coyos, I think uh, we know that if you personalize your communication, to someone's personality, right? You can you can get huge benefits in understanding the other person better, in getting a better connection with them, building a better relationship and faster. Um, an example: you don't talk to your three-year-old the same way you talk to your boss, right? You don't have to have such a drastic difference, but you know there are some people that you want to communicate in some way. And, and others that you would communicate differently, and, and they, would, they would like that. They, they would hear the message better. They would, they would relate to what you are saying, and not, you know, be, be distracted by the, the mode of communication or how you said it, right? So these minor things, but then also on these other side, you have political manipulation, right? Cambridge Analytica used to exploit some of these things in a way that you know, led to, to a very, very negative outcome. So you have to make sure that you try to, to safeguard against these uses and then you know you, you monitor, you build checks, you build you build barriers. You would not allow them to, to generate um, you know, the, the analysis or, or content that would potentially or could be potentially used in this way. So um, yeah, maybe one more example from the personality space since it's, it's very close to my heart. Um, there is this, there has been this huge discussion about, and we know from research that some personalities actually match some occupations better, right? Mm, We've seen yeah. that, that you know, if you are very extroverted, you would probably be a great seller, right? Because you love talking to people, you really thrive in that. If you are more introverted, you would actually enjoy a little bit calmer uh, occupation, somewhere where you can you know spend some time on your own, be you know thinking about stuff. Um, so it's it's a very different environment, and now. Should you disqualify people based on their personality in obtaining that job? Absolutely no. That that is an absolute no. Should you personalize how you deal with these people, how you let them thrive, how you let them grow, and you know how you manage these people? That that's a great yes, right? It, there might be a very introverted person who would love to become a seller for whatever reason. That that's not for me to judge, right? I'm there to help them become the seller by by informing their manager, how to manage them, how to motivate them, and how to help them thrive in that role. Definitely. And also how they interact with the, the rest of the team, I'd imagine as well, how they fit within that exactly. team dynamic and the company dynamic. And I can relate to that being a, an introvert in a sales-focused industry. <laughs> um, it's you, you see a lot of extroverted individuals that, that are the majority, but there are other reasons as to why, uh, especially you know, if you get into the nuanced elements of it, I suppose, as to why the i suppose that the, the non-conformist or the non-typical um individuals might like certain industries as well um right i suppose sort of um summing up uh the whole conversation if there are company leaders listening to this podcast or uh, maybe even you know um people looking to scale up companies or um, VCs or PE companies looking to invest in you know, who should they invest in? What would be your, you know, a snippet of advice you would give to companies looking to um, go into sort of people analytics, go into um, sort of AI and scale it at, at, at pace? What would be your, you know, couple of words of wisdom for them? Right. Making you think on your feet there a little bit. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Um, 
probably just go beyond the hype. I think um, it, it seems like there is a, a huge tsunami is now coming, right? And and like we are drowning, but you know th there will be again some some equilibrium that we'll reach. And as 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 a leader, you have to plan for that, not just for the wave that will come now. It it will be extremely chaotic for for a couple of years for sure, but. I think going back to the basics and building a, a resilient, stable company that has healthy books, that is not going into too much debt, that provides robust value for its customers and its users, I think that is the bottom line. And those will be the companies that will see win in the, in the next 10 to 15 years. Amazing. And it's that, that long-term thinking that I, I definitely resonate with as well. So I think that's a, a great place to end it. So thank you very much, uh, Martin, for coming on and having a conversation um, about this topic. Really, really interesting. I think hopefully it's very interesting for anyone listening as well. And we Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. We'd be really keep to have you on uh, as another point, but um, we'll have more episodes upcoming soon. And go, everyone listening, go and check out Poyos as well. They're doing some really interesting work. Um, so go and check them out on LinkedIn and uh, wherever else uh, they can they can see you. If you want to give a quick sort of plug now <laughs> to where they can catch you, uh, we'll post it in the in the comments. It's getkoyos.ai. Get k o i o s.ai. Perfect. Thanks, Martin. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.